From the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne, this is The Yarn, a podcast produced on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I'm Thomas Phillips. A government report has revealed a healthcare system pushed to breaking point in rural New South Wales. In the state's central and far west, overworked nurses are taking on the roles of doctors, hospitals don't have enough free beds, and vulnerable children aren't getting the specialist care they need. Today, our guest is Jordan Beasley, the Citizen's former cadet journalist. She used a grant from the Michael Gordon Foundation to investigate this crisis. In a three-part collaboration between The Citizen and The Guardian, she reported on the rural communities hit hardest. I started off by asking Jordan to explain the most serious shortcomings revealed by the report. I guess it revealed specifically that rural healthcare has undergone over the past 20 years this system of centralising services into regional towns and what that has meant for regions like the central west New South Wales is they have a lot of smaller hospitals or what's known as multi-purpose health services within these smaller towns um, to meet the health needs but over the past 20 years they've had a lot of the services and staff stripped from those hospitals uh, in favour of bolstering the bigger regional hubs but what the three-part series that I did revealed was that a lot of those services have been removed by stealth and to the protest of a lot of the local doctors and the reason that they're protesting is because a lot of these communities are lower socioeconomic communities who can't necessarily afford or have the means to travel say five hours to a big regional hospital. Uh, So that was a big part of the issue because in the end a lot are just going without the health services that they need and that's why we see uh, the number of preventative deaths uh, so high within that region. What did you see when you were on the ground kind of reporting there and what, what kind of sense did you get about how the community was feeling about this crisis? What I found most interesting is obviously being a journalist going into any community there's going to be kind of potentially a certain level of hesitancy about speaking to you. You know, this is the region that my dad grew up in. It's where my grandparents live in. So even with those ties, that was still a concern of mine. But what I actually found is people have been so screwed over, for want of a better word, either themselves or a family member have had a horrible experience or in terms of the health workforce, just so overworked and have had so many awful experiences trying to help people that as soon as you reached out, you know, most people were like, yep, I've got a story, I'll talk to you. And that was particularly interesting for the healthcare staff, the nurses and doctors, because they're employed by the government. They're actually not supposed to speak to media unless they have approval by Um, their local health district Um, but quite a few were like I don't even care anymore (laughs) like this issue just really needs to get out there Um, and it's time that I speak my mind. I guess two pretty illustrative examples of kind of how people were feeling when I was there was for the first story I wrote that was published that was about just how many children are developmentally challenged in this region and there's no services to support that need. 
all of the parents and teachers that I spoke to who were telling me about just how bad it is at the end of the interview, you know, when I would ask that classic journalist question, is there anything else that I haven't asked that, you know, you want to touch on or do you have anything else to tell me? They would always end by saying, oh, I just really want to say thank you. Thank you so much for looking into this. Like we're just at our wits end. Children are growing up with these speech impediments, trauma, social issues that these services like allied health um, specialists are supposed to support, but they can't get them. And these are the type of services where if a child doesn't get that support, they can't learn, they drop out of school. Statistics show that developmentally vulnerable children who haven't had their needs met when they're young are most likely to end up in juvenile justice system and it sort of reverberates throughout their entire life. And I guess the kind of second quite illustrative thing is I was fortunate to be given a tour of local hospital in Warren by one of the nurses there. Uh, and when I arrived at 7am in the morning, she'd just finished an 18-hour shift and had to pull a double and was one of a number back-to-back doubles that she was pulling because they were just so understaffed. And she showed me uh, the emergency department room they have set up with the telehealth camera system because they've removed a lot of the doctors from these hospitals. They've set up a little camera system so that if you come into hospital and you're really sick, there's like a little camera that's sitting over your bed where the doctor can see you and then a TV screen's wheeled in and the doctor's on the other end. And she told me a lot about so many instances where people had been misdiagnosed. So the patient left and just kept bouncing back and forth into the hospital because what was wrong with them wasn't being seen to because there was no physical doctor there to actually touch and feel and see and talk to them. What kind of impact are these conditions having on the workers themselves having to like deal with this crisis? So that nurse that I just spoke about, she has actually since left that hospital because of the pressure and because she was so disillusioned by the way that it was run. And we spoke after I wrote the story and she told me how much of a, I guess, moral dilemma that was for her because she's the only child and family health nurse in that town. And so even when she would go on annual leave for, say, three weeks over Christmas, any babies that were born during that time in the town, they wouldn't get seen by a child and family health nurse if she wasn't there. And now that she's left um, and it's going to take however long to recruit another and they're going to go through the same uh, challenges that she did, she just felt so bad kind of leaving her community in the lurch like that, but she just couldn't take it anymore. And a big reason that she couldn't take it anymore was because of that telehealth system that I described without a physical doctor in the room, all of the pressures being placed on the nurse. So suddenly the doc- the nurse becomes the doctor's eyes and ears and nose and is kind of feeling around and trying to communicate that back to the doctor. And that's a lot of pressure for a nurse who's only trained as a nurse, not as a doctor, and is only getting paid as a nurse and not as a doctor. And on top of that, they don't have uh, patient to nurse ratios in New South Wales, um, which means they were just constantly understaffed. They were just running around trying to do everything that they could, which is why so many um, patients' kind of health concerns and needs are getting missed because they're just overstretched. 
Did you hear any other specific stories of patients that illustrate like the extent of this crisis? I spoke to this farmer in the Central West whose dad was very, very ill, um, was sent to the local hospital and was whipped away in the ambulance to the big regional hospital. And he arrived to the hospital 12 hours later to find his dad uncontrollably vomiting. The farmer said to me he was like, he's like he's diabetic and you haven't fed or watered him for 12 hours. That's that's why he's vomiting. And essentially he said to me, I was like, what the fuck are you doing? Like <laughs> he just couldn't believe that there seemed to be no communication about why his dad was set, sent and why he was there and the fact that they kind of were essentially completely misdiagnosing him. And so they ended up taking their dad to another regional hospital in the area, which was a little bit further away, but much better staffed and better resourced. And once they got there, they finally felt like he got the care that he needed. He ended up dying a week later. He felt like how he was treated at this other regional hospital sped up his death in the end. And that's pretty heartbreaking because when the inquiry into New South Wales Rural and Remote Healthcare released its findings a couple of weeks ago, um, I was reading the report and I found another story um, by a person talking about the experience of their own father in this same hospital who also had experience of not getting any food or water within this kind of prolonged period of time. So I think that kind of like hit home a bit because it kind of realised how much of a pattern it was. It's not just a standalone thing. The report's given the state government six months to take action. Do you have a sense that it could be turned around and what would need to happen? I think what is a concern of mine, and this was expressed to me by a number of doctors that I spoke to, is that all throughout the hearings and the submissions to the inquiry, particularly when New South Wales Health and the local health districts and the federal government were called to undergo a hearing, they each point the finger at each other. And the reason for that is because the state government takes care of uh, hospitals and the federal government takes care of primary health. And how it works in a lot of these rural towns is there's local GPs, which is primary health, which is federally funded, but then they're contracted by the state government to work in the hospital to deliver, you know, emergency care and whatnot. And so the state government in charge of the hospitals points the finger at the federal government and says the reason we have no GPs on enough healthcare staff is because you're not funding primary healthcare properly. And then the federal government points the finger at the state government and says, hey, we've chipped in this many million dollars into your health budget. You should be meeting that. And then when you actually talk to the doctors, they say both are to blame. It's a product of the policies from both government uh, and the way the system is run. And so I think that we're probably not going to see change until there's actually a proper coordination and recognition that there's failures, failures across both levels of government and they need to work together to make a more cohesive and less fragmented health system. But there has already been some promising things from the state government. Like I believe last week they announced 
I think it was 3,000 extra staff that they nurses that they plan to put into rural hospitals. But then again, the question is where are they going to get that staff? So many have left because they're so disillusioned by the way things are run that, you know, potentially they won't come back unless they see some of the recommendations from this report actually implemented. That was Jordan Beasley. You can read her reporting about the rural healthcare crisis in The Guardian and The Citizen. The Yarn is from the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne. It's produced on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. A massive thank you to Jordan Beasley. Our executive producer is Louisa Lim. The Yarn is taking a short break before season two, but see you soon. <laughs>